It was a warm Atlanta evening in 1996, and uh, I was sitting at a table in the food court at the Galleria Mall, watching a bank of payphones that were on the other side of a wall of fake greenery that separated me from the people on the phones about 10 feet away. Every phone was in use, and the callers were oddly similar. They were all scruffy teenage boys, and each one of them had a piece of paper in his hand with a list of 30 telephone numbers on it. They were going through their lists, calling each number, waiting for an answer. If a person answered, they hung up and went on to the next number. If a modem answered, that telltale screech that we all, okay, many of us, remember from the 80s, they circled the number on their list and went on to the next one. These were hackers, and they were war dialing looking for phone lines that were connected to modems and, by extension, to a computer. Once they'd gone through the trouble of culling out each list, they'd go back to their homes, lock themselves in their bedrooms, and at their leisure, begin the process of trying to break into the computers on the other side of each modem that they had discovered. Now, perhaps I should also point out that none of these people with phones to their ears had ever thought about shaving yet, because they were all about 13 years old. I got sucked into the world of hackers by a publisher in the mid-1990s who asked me to collaborate as a writer on a book about the emerging field of computer and network security. Now, you have to keep in mind what it was like back then. Netscape was the dominant browser, memory cost $400 per megabyte, and everyone wondered if the newly released Windows 95 would give Apple a run for their money. It didn't. Computers had 33 megahertz processors, Today, they easily run at more than 150 times that speed. And your friends became your best friends bearing gifts if you had a 28.8 kilobit per second modem. We laugh, but back then, those were serious capabilities. And hackers didn't need much more than that because they had their brains and they had each other. Let's do a little history because it's interesting and it helps to set context here. The first hackers weren't really hackers at all. They were called freakers, and they spent their time trying to break into corporate telephone systems so that they could steal dial tone. There weren't really any computers around to speak of because we're talking about the late 60s and early 70s. The term hacker actually came about long before computers, and it referred to any activity that disrupted the flow of carefully planned events. Two of the earliest and best-known examples occurred at college sporting events. In 1961, Caltech students from Pasadena hacked the annual Rose Bowl game by replacing three sets of cards. There were 2,300 cards in each set that would be used by students in the stands to, you know, perform card stunts. The results were predictable. Instead of displaying Washington, one set of cards displayed Caltech. Another displayed Huskies, but spelled it backwards. A final stunt displayed a beaver, Caltech's mascot, instead of the Washington Husky. In another example, MIT hacked the Harvard-Yale game. Right after Harvard's second touchdown against Yale in the first quarter, a small black balloon emerged from the ground on the 40-yard line and began to expand. On it was printed MIT in large letters. When the balloon reached a diameter of about six feet, it popped with a bang and a big cloud of white smoke. The Boston Globe later reported that the winner of the Harvard-Yale game was in fact MIT, and MIT's president was quoted as saying, there is absolutely no truth to the rumor that I had anything to do with it, but I wish there were. Now, both of these stunts required ingenuity, planning, stealth, patience, and guts, all of which are also necessary for successful computer hacking. According to anthropologist Max Weber, an individual's status requires three key things. 
accumulation of wealth, power, and therefore the ability to control others, and achievement of an enhanced state of prestige among peers. With a few tweaks, these are the same forces that motivate hackers, as it turns out. Now, while most hackers aren't particularly interested in accumulating vast amounts of wealth, they are interested in accumulating vast amounts of information, the digital coin of their realm. In the hacker's universe, not unlike the modern corporate universe, information equates to power, and power leads to prestige. In the hacker community, prestige stems directly from technical proficiency. When I was first assigned this project by the publisher, I wasn't really thrilled about it. I honestly thought it was going to be a boring process of trying to learn things about a community of people for whom anonymity was important. But I had to start somewhere, so I went to the bookstore and I dug up a copy of 2600 Magazine, also known as the Hacker Quarterly. If you've never seen a copy of this magazine, you need to go check it out. Each issue contains the latest access information and hacking tips and tricks that the community has discovered since the last issue. It will amaze you, and it will terrify you. Now, you know that I'm famous for taking side roads in this podcast, and since some of you are probably wondering why the magazine is called 2600, I'll tell you. It's actually really interesting. The traditional telephone network, I'm going to get a little bit technical here for just a second. The traditional telephone network is really hierarchical. It's made up of great big switches that process calls and then the trunks that connect them together, just big, high-capacity copper or optical connections. There are local switches and long-distance switches. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but it's close enough. Anyway, local switches know local stuff. Long-distance switches have access to databases that tell them about distant stuff. For example, if I were to call someone here in my own town, the local switch would know everything it needs to know to place the call. But if instead I were to call a friend out in California, for example, the call would have to be handed off to a long-distance switch, which has enough additional smarts to recognize the non-Vermont area code and route the call accordingly. So when the local switch gets a call it can't handle, it sends it on to the long-distance environment. But to do that, it needs a trunk to transmit the call over. Now, in the old days of analog switching, before everything went digital, it would signal its need for a trunk by transmitting a single frequency 2600 hertz tone into the network, which would cause a long distance trunk to be seized so that the call could be passed on. 2600 hertz sounds kind of like this. Okay, stick with me. It gets easy from here. Back in the 60s, a freaker, remember they preceded hackers, by the name of John Draper, somehow figured out that the little plastic boson's whistle that came in every box of Captain Crunch cereal emitted, you guessed it, a 2600 hertz tone when you blew into it. He also figured out that if you took it to a payphone, picked up the handset, and blew the whistle into the mouthpiece, you'd hear a click, you'd get secondary dial tone, and you could then dial anywhere in the world you wanted free of charge. Well, needless to say, this became a rather popular toy, and it spawned a brand new industry of small companies manufacturing 2600 hertz tone generators. Now, one of those two-person companies made so much money from the sale of those tone generators, which came to be known as blue boxes, that they were able to start a rather successful company from the proceeds. The company they created was called Apple. Their names were Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Okay, so back to our story. In those days, 2600 Magazine had an online bulletin board. This is really before the web took root. So I posted a message there that basically said, hey, I'm a writer. 
I'm writing a book about hackers, and I'd like to interview one. So if you'd be willing to be interviewed, please call me at this number. You're welcome to call Collect. I don't need to know your name. You can stay anonymous and so on. Well, I didn't expect any calls, of course, because these were hackers after all. Well, they called. All of them. Over the course of about six weeks, I interviewed more than 100 people. One of them invited me to attend a war dialing session in Atlanta, which is why I was sitting in the food court at the Galleria Mall watching these kids wreak digital havoc on a bunch of unsuspecting companies. So what did I learn from all of these interviews? Well, some very, very interesting things, as it turns out. As I said, the average age of these kids was 13, and keep in mind what average means. They were almost all boys. Out of the 100 or so that I interviewed, only two were girls. They were all bored in school because they were intellectual outcasts and not really challenged by the academics that they were subjected to. And perhaps most important, all of them, and I mean all of them, 100%, came from physically or emotionally abusive homes where they felt that they'd lost all control over their own lives and the only way to get it back was to take it from somebody else. So they gravitated to these odd gaggles of hackerdom where they used their technical powers to satisfy the need for control. But here's where the story gets really interesting. All the hackers I interviewed, including the three that I actually met in person, believed in what they called the hacker ethic. Find a machine, break in, look around, leave your mark, get out. Don't crash the machine, don't trash the data, don't do any damage. Just prove that you could if you wanted to. The ultimate in power and control, especially when you consider that many of the companies I sat back and watched them hack into belonged to banks and hospitals and telephone companies and water and power companies and at least one insurance company. They were all in search of an elusive level of accomplishment among their peers called hacker elite. I never found anyone who could clearly define it for me. Basically, it means that if someone hacks into what's considered to be a particularly well-protected sort of hacker-proof machine, then they achieve hacker elite. Those machines, by the way, don't exist. There's no such thing as a hacker-proof system, as we'll hear a bit later in the podcast. Now, people often ask me why companies don't hire these people since they're so good at what they do and they'd be such a valuable addition to a corporate security team. Well, the answer is twofold. On the one hand, they don't hire them because they're 13. On the other hand, they may be smart, but they're not necessarily looking for a corporate job and they probably wouldn't fit in even if they were to be hired. The other thing to keep in mind is that during the time frame that I'm talking about, there were no formal training or educational programs in the field. You couldn't get a degree in digital forensics because it didn't exist yet. Today, though, you can, and it's a good thing because the world of the hacker has been turned on its head. Yeah, there are still plenty of people out there who hack just for the sake of hacking. All you have to do is look to the annual Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas, which attracts thousands of cybersecurity professionals every year. It's big business, and it's a good thing, because so is hacking, and it's not all good. I had the opportunity recently to spend some time with Joe Plunkett, an information security systems specialist with People's United Bank, who makes it his mission to track what's going on in the hacker community. Most of us have heard about some of the cloud-based services that businesses depend on, like software as a service, network as a service, infrastructure as a service, and so on. But one of them that you probably haven't heard of is crime as a service. It's real, and it's Joe's job to keep it out of his clients' networks, and it comes in many forms. Some of the most common threats that are facing online users today are phishing, crypto mining, 
and malware. You know, these these are three threats that have been around for quite a while. They're not new, but the way they've been implemented is is constantly evolving, which is why users keep falling for these these same attacks. So what is it that motivates these hackers? Why is it so easy for them to do what they do? The motivations of these attackers or, or the methods they're going to use in these phishing emails is is the psychology behind these attacks. Attackers that, that leverage you know attacks like phishing, they're always trying to exploit people's willingness to help, people's fear response, their greed response. And you know, let me give you an example of this. So you may get an email from a fisher or an attacker that is pretending to be your bank. And in order to exploit your, your fear response, they might say something like, hey, if you don't click on this link and you know change your password, then all your money is going to be gone. And in this scam, you know, there's, there's a lot of variations, but it's often, hey, if you, you know, if you send me this sum of money, then I can send you back, you know, 10 times the money. I just need the legal fees to process this, this inheritance you're going to get or whatever. And so people might send, you know, 500, 1,000, 10,000 dollars with the hopes of getting 100,000 or a million back. And in this scenario, the attacker is, is just trying to prey on our greed response or our, our pleasure response. Much like with the other attack, um, with the banking example, where they're trying to exploit our fear response. So clearly there's a lot of energy going into these attacks. The question that came up for me as I listened to Joe was, how do I recognize a scam so that I can avoid becoming a victim? Often users, they'll read these emails in a hurry and they won't notice the, the very obvious clues, very blatant spelling mistakes. You know, if, you, if you're getting an email that claims to be from Apple but it was written by somebody whose you know English might be their fourth language then it's it's pretty clear that this is a scam right you know it's pretty clear that this is something that you should not be clicking on but there's some that are really sophisticated and and you know they they've done really well even me who who looks at these all day long and and studies the tactics that hackers are using even i have a hard time sometimes differentiating between a legitimate email and a scam or a phishing email so there's a few steps that i like to do when I come across one of these emails to, you know, just to validate it. The very first thing you can do, and this is something we, we drill into all of our users, is to hover your mouse over that link. You don't actually want to click on it, but if you hover your mouse over it, you'll be able to see the underlying URL that that link is leading to. A good motto to live by is trust, but verify. You know, it, it's okay to have some faith in your, your fellow coworkers who might be sending you these emails because their accounts have been breached but always try to verify anything that's even remotely suspicious. If it doesn't look right, more often than not, it's not right. Okay, that's good advice. But what if I am a victim? What if I accidentally click on the link or learn that my system has somehow been compromised? The very first thing you should really do is, once you've been um, compromised or suspect, even suspect you've been compromised, is to go into all your accounts and change your passwords. If you are reusing the same password across multiple accounts, that is a hacker's dream. What they're going to do is they may not even hack you directly. You know, there may be a major breach, for example, the Equifax breach, right? Millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans had their data compromised in the Equifax breach. And if you use the same password for maybe your Equifax account that you're using for your bank account, that you use for your email account and your social media account, now the hacker has access to every online portal that you interact with. So the very first thing you need to do after a suspected breach is change all your passwords and make sure each account has a unique password. I know this sounds, you know, this sounds 
terrible and annoying. So to get around this, there's a couple things you can do. One is I'm a big fan of password managers. You know, there, there's apps out there like LastPass and, and others that are very secure and very helpful in, in maintaining and tracking multiple passwords. And just another note on passwords too. The, the only thing that matters when it comes to a password is length. There's been a lot of talk in the industry over the last 10, 15 years about trying to mix up passwords and do this and that with it. But in all honesty, where computing power has come, the only thing that matters is length. Anything under you know, 17 to 20 characters is, is just not that secure. The current industry thinking on user passwords, um, it's put out by NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. And what they are recommending right now is passphrases. And what a passphrase is, is it's very similar to a password, but it's much longer. It's a phrase instead of just a word. So the passphrase may be something you know simple like, I enjoy long walks on the beach. And now you have a 20-something character password that is cryptographically and mathematically much more secure than anything else that you could create that would be under maybe under 10 characters. Now, there are a few other things that could be done as well. Over the past decade or so, as computers have become increasingly sophisticated, so too have the hackers. So while changing your password is good, there's more to it than that. I know a lot of organizations will require eight characters with one number, one special character, and that's great. You know, and that, that was really important 10 years ago. But where we're at now, those are being breached left and right. So it's incredibly important for you to come up with these, these phrases that you can, um, you can use in your accounts that will just make it impossible for the, the attacker to break these passwords if they manage to, to grab the hashes somehow. And grab them they will. If I go to an organization and, and I see they've got caps, lowercase, special characters, and numbers, right? It's got to have, it's got to be a letter, uppercase, lowercase, special character, yada, yada. So I know almost instantly going in there, their password is going to be an uppercase letter, seven lowercase letters, an exclamation point, and the number one, or some similar combination. Or it's going to be a word like, let's say it's a word like Apple, where they use the at sign PP13. You know where they're so substituting letters for numbers, and and so what they'll do is there's actually you know there's tools. So I'll if I want to crack your password, I can I can take a hacker tool out. It's fully automated. I don't have to do much. I put in you know a, a list of of suspected passwords, and these are typically just like a dictionary of, hey you know I know this guy lives in Vermont, and then what the program will do is it will take you know Vermont, Acme Corps, Burlington, all these all these keywords, and it'll start smashing them together. And trying these passwords in a brute force style, you know, just keep trying these. And at the same time, it will take things like, hey, if I see the letter A, I'll replace it with the at symbol. And if I see, you know, the letter L, I might replace it with a bang or an exclamation point or a one. You know, it starts doing this this elite translations for us. And this this is how attackers are constantly breaching passwords. The number one thing that that leads to a password breach, though, is users using insecure passwords. And this is literally how companies are breached near daily. The user is using a password like capital W, winter, 2017, exclamation point. That's it. So most organizations will have a quarterly password change requirement. So, okay, my password for the winter is winter 2018, exclamation point. And now in the spring, when I have to change it, it becomes spring 2018, exclamation point, and so on and so on. And these are some of the very first passwords that attackers will try when they're they're attempting to gain access to an organization. And the sad part is, more often than not, 
they gain access almost every time. It takes one user to use that simple password, and then they're able to gain access into the organization, and they can start to exploit other systems and, and elevate privileges from there. These are literally the techniques that they teach them. Hey, try the winner 2019 exclamation point, or try password one exclamation point. So what are Joe's recommendations? I hear from a lot of people who, you know, they want to give up because they see in the news, well, you know, if, if attackers can get into anything, you know, attackers can, can get anywhere. So what's the point? Well, the point is not being the low-hanging fruit, right? I really like the comparison to a house, okay? Your house has locks on the windows and on the doors. But if, you know, if a burglar wanted to get into your house, let's face it, is it that hard to break a window or to, you know, drill through the lock, your deadbolt on your door? They'll, they will get in. And it's the same thing with online security. You know, the, these locks that we use, these passwords and, and second factor authentication steps, they're, they're like locks on your doors. They help and they will keep you from becoming the low hanging fruit. They're not perfect, but they will make you much more secure. So even though none of these techniques is perfect, anything that makes your computer harder to get into works in your favor. Just like a burglar looking for a house to break into, they're far more likely to break into the house that doesn't have an alarm system or that has an unlocked back door than a better protected home. From a cybersecurity point of view, Joe's suggestions are the things that make your network and your computers more secure. Use a passphrase rather than a password. Use two-factor authentication, which means that not only do you need to enter a password, you also have to enter the six-digit code that just appeared on your phone and that will become invalid in 30 seconds. Is it a pain? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Now, there's one other area that I specifically wanted to ask Joe about, and that's the special case of social media. Social media is one of the greatest things to ever happen for hackers. Here we have a platform, you know, some let's look at let's pick on Facebook because they're the big guys, right? Here we have a platform where users are constantly sharing personal data, you know, telephone numbers, full names, locations, places they like to visit, name of their friends. So users are just handing this stuff out into the world. And attackers can write little, you know, little pieces of software to go up to the internet and just grab all this stuff for them, put it all into a database where they can they can look through it later and make these connections. So the first thing, you know, the first piece of advice I have for people that are, you know, have any kind of social media presence is to go through your privacy settings and make sure they're dated. You know, make sure you are sharing the least amount of information with as few people as possible. Personally, like I don't even have my full name on my social media account. And the reason for this is is that I, I've seen the power of, you know, these attacks. And even if you take it a step back, you know, we can look at something like the Cambridge Analytica scandal that just, you know, surfaced recently. And, you know, the the real short on this is that essentially the world kind of became aware that Facebook has been selling our data for a long time. Now, as a, as an IT or as a security professional, I don't know why this shocked so many people. You know, here is a here is an organization, Facebook, that employs thousands of people, that has a couple billion users, I think, at this point, and it's all for free. So obviously, obviously, nothing's for free in this world, right? They're they're getting their money somewhere, and and how are they getting it? They're monetizing our data. You know, they're going to sell your name, your phone number, your email, your anything, your political views, your sexual orientations. They're going to sell it to, to marketers. But, you know, Cambridge Analytica showed us that these are actually being used for, you know, other means. You know, for example, they they see that you're, hey, you're highly to the left or you're highly to the right. So now I'm going to start feeding you 
these incredibly you know biased and corrupted posts that are going to try to push your opinion on a subject one way or the other and and this is essentially what happened with the 2016 election right attackers you know nation states they took this data that many users feel is innocuous or, or non-important they weaponized that data pointed it right back at us and we all know how that story played out you know that was the 2016 election now it, it turned into a huge scandal so i think i think it's time for us to really think about all the data that we're sharing on these social media sites and, and see if we can't pull it back a little. So what are the key takeaways? The most important takeaways to keep yourself secure are things like trust but verify. Always just do your homework. If you see a link that, that looks suspicious, you know, check it out, go to the website, um, right click that link, copy link address, put it in a notepad, see where it's really trying to take you. But when in doubt, do not click that link. Never click that link. Don't send it to your friend to click. If you clicked it, nothing happened. That's a bad sign. Don't click it again. Just don't click it. Please don't do it. And then password complexity. You know, it's, it's huge. I understand it's a, it's a real pain. But if it's a pain for you, it's a pain for the attacker. So get longer passwords. Find a good passphrase um, and change it up from account to account. You, the worst thing in the world, uh, you know, as a security professional is when I see one password get compromised and get changed, but it doesn't matter because the attacker, maybe they, they compromised your Facebook password, but that's the password you're using on your bank account. So now they have access to your whole world. Just don't let it happen. And then two-factor authentication is the most important thing that you can be doing right now. The, the easiest low-hanging fruit that you can be grabbing to secure your online presence. Joe Plunkett is an information security systems specialist with People's United Bank. Thanks, Joe, for sharing your expertise with us. I hope you all got some value from this episode. What we just heard from Joe is as relevant to an individual as it is to a corporation. And as we become an increasingly connected society with more and more potential points of vulnerability, it's important to use common sense and be safe. If you've got questions about this topic or you'd like to know more, send me an email and we'll get you some answers. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard.